Hey everybody, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. My name is Jake Wiskirchen and I'm the host of this show. And if you don't know that by now, I'm guessing you probably haven't listened to the last 107 or so episodes that we've recorded. But in any event, welcome back, uh, or welcome for the first time if you're new to listening to this show. Uh, Noggin Notes aims to educate and enrich your noggin on matters of mental health and wellness through all aspects. Today's show happens to be the concluding part of our series on domestic violence awareness. It is October in the United States. It's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And so we have Angel Littlefield being interviewed. She's a clinical professional counselor intern licensed in the state of Nevada, full scope of practice. Uh, She is an intern under me, and I am her supervisor. So we have lots of conversations about this stuff, but her chief time is spent working at Safe Embrace, and you guys have probably heard about Safe Embrace if you've listened to the last couple of episodes. Safe Embrace is our local sexual and domestic violence resource center and safe house, and Angel works there doing clinical services. Couldn't be prouder of her. Uh, we're sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, and that's where Angel works. In conjunction with Zephyr, uh, with uh, Safe Embrace, Zephyr Wellness provides clinical services for that agency, and uh, if you want to check out more, check out zephyrwellness.org. Also sponsoring the show is Audible. If you want, you can go and get your free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash notes, and you can download a free audio book with that 30-day trial. And it doesn't have to be a book. It could be news, uh, some sort of article, entertainment of some kind. There's comedy. Uh, their, their library is quite unmatched, and that's because they're powered by Amazon, and Amazon's a really expansive company that uh, constantly seeks new content for its subscribers. AudibleTrial.com slash notes. Uh, help them out. Help us out. Help yourself out. Feed your brain. Audiobooks are great. If you haven't heard me talk about it before, uh, they're, they're awesome. You can plug it in and listen virtually anywhere, uh, especially if you have Bluetooth in your car or uh, around the home or whatnot. AudibleTrial.com slash notes. Free 30-day trial. No commitment. Cancel anytime inside the 30 days and even keep your download. That all being said, if you want to reach out to us, you get some feedback about the show or topics you want us to cover, email info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org. We'll be happy to respond and or even get your topic covered on the show. So thank you again for accessing our content, downloading it. Please share it with others. This is why we do that. What we do is we want to just spread the wealth. So if you can spread it as well, that means other people are educating and enriching their noggins. Without further delay, here is my interview with Angel Littlefield. We hope you enjoy it. So today we're uh, concluding our domestic violence series for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I'm talking with Angel Littlefield. Hello. Hello. And uh, Angel is, if you, you probably heard in the intro, uh, she works at Safe Embrace, which is a, a partner with us. We've interviewed uh, John Malcolm from Safe Embrace before, and um, there are local, or at least local of the Truckee Meadows Sexual and Domestic Violence Resource Center and Safe House. Um, Angel is one of our clinicians. She's a licensed uh, intern with the state of Nevada. She, she was a student completing her hours with Zephyr Wellness. And uh, she's had a multitude of uh, life experiences and uh, careers, both um, full-time and false start and uh, part-time. <laughs> and, um, so I'm going to let her talk, but I, I'm i hoping that we can shed some light on the idea that um, 
you know, to become a clinician, because there's a lot of people who listen to the show and they uh, reach out through email or text message to me privately. And they're like, hey, I want to get in the mental health field. I mean, some of them are youth, some of them are adults they are looking for second careers. But a lot of them, I think there's still a veil over our profession that seems very mysterious and out of reach. And it's not. And I like your story. But I also, in addition to hearing your story, which is very inspiring, I want to hear about the work that you you do now in Safe Embrace that you've done over the last year plus at Safe Embrace as a practicum student and also your previous career with the state of Nevada working with the severely mentally ill people who are, you know, uh, struggling to find resources and have lifetime histories of trauma and so forth. So uh, I'm going to shut up because I've gotten like eight hours of sleep across the last two days. I'm sitting back here crushing energy drinks like they're going out of style and I'm going to let you talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do I start? I don't know. What brought you into the field in the first place? Let's start there. Um, What brought me into the field the first place was I actually originally decided to go to school for elementary education. And um, I got accepted to UNR. And I'm the first to go to college in my family. That would be the University of Nevada, Reno. We try to avoid Uh, acronyms and lingo uh, on this show. Sorry. University of Nevada, Reno. Um, I was the first to go to college. So I went away. I lived in the dorms. And... um, I had lost my brother to a train accident the year before, and this was the first year that I didn't have family around. I wasn't able to go to his uh, grave for the anniversary. That's awful. Yes. So um, I actually freaked out at the dorms, and the resident director of the dorms basically said, hey, I'm going to take you down to the counseling department because I want you to talk to somebody. She's like, I can't make you continue to go, but I'm going to have you go at least once and check it out. So I started going and talking to somebody, and it literally changed my life. And then I changed my major because I loved it. <laughs> and what was your major when you graduated? Uh, psychology. My bachelor's is in psychology. And what did you do with that psychology degree? Oh, God. <laughs> well, uh, I bartended. That's, that's what a lot of psychology <laughs> undergrads end up doing, or, or being a barista, maybe. Yes, yes. So uh, I bartended, and then I started out doing um, psychosocial rehabilitation and basic skills training, which was basically teaching people how to, like, emotional regulation. So if they would start to freak out, a lot of times it was kids, teenagers, adults, it was all populations, um, and teaching them how to control those emotions um, different ways of coping skills, um, and some for basic skills training, teaching them, you know, okay, did you have a shower today? All right. So in getting a schedule down so that they can learn how to take care of themselves. You know, and for the listening audience, psychosocial rehabilitation, uh, shortened to PSR and basic skills training shortened to BST. Those are, uh, services paid for by Medicaid and, uh, most, most state Medicaid's as I understand it, pay for that. And I know they do in Nevada, obviously that's where we are. Um, mo- no other commercial insurance I know of pays for those skills or those uh, those um, rehabilitative services. And I think it's a shame because I also did PSR and BST work, uh, which got me into the field. And I think it's some of the most effective interventions you can have. Uh, and I, I'm saying that as a you know, licensed clinician who does talk therapy and trains other people to do it. We, we like to think of ourselves at the, the graduate level as like the be-all, end-all of like clinical interventions. Turns out, not so much. <laughs> uh, sometimes just being with somebody, loving on them without any real particular skill set is the most effective healing we can do. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what BST and PSR is. It's a, it's a thing that you go into the community and work with the individuals in their homes, and, and, you're, and you're rehabilitating them uh, with social skills and, and, and basic stuff like you know tying your shoes and putting mm-hmm. food on the table. So... 
So you did the, the PSR and BST thing. Mm-hmm. And then what? And then I started getting into um, case management. Um, so I did psychiatric case management. So everybody that I worked at with had been diagnosed with a severe mental illness. A lot of the clients that I worked with, there was a lot of schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, uh, personality disorders, which really gave me the core of everything that I learned because I saw it every day. And then you notice how different people behave. Um, you notice how to talk to people, honestly, which was actually a very good skill that I learned from bartending, mm-hmm. but <laughs> it did help um, in mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So th- there's a lot of customer service overlap. So if you if you happen to be in any of the customer service industries, you know, whether it's retail or food service or otherwise, and you're thinking about a career in mental health, you probably already have the talent. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely use a lot of the skills that I learned in bartending and talking to people and reading people. If people are starting to get escalated, you have to de-escalate them, and you're de-escalating people who have been drinking. So right, it's right. complicated sometimes. And, and a little footnote on that, because we, we spent a lot of time in this program talking about emotional management, that kind of thing. Um, in the brain, cognitively, uh, you lose the ability to have reason and rationale when you drink because alcohol affects your frontal lobe. And I've also taught that uh, frontal lobe and the limbic system don't act simultaneously. So if one is high, the other is low. And if you're drinking and your cognition is impaired, the emotions come forward. Uh, they end up elevating, which is why you get a lot of fighting in bars and I love you, man, because there's no uh, frontal lobe to check that and keep it in place. So if you can negotiate with somebody who's got low frontal lobe function, you're you're doing pretty well for yourself. What got you into the, the graduate track to, to become a, a master's level clinician? Um, I realized that I can't do anything that I wanted to do with a bachelor's degree. Mm. Um, and then at the time... Um, I had, I was a single mother of one at the time and I wanted to do more than bartending. I liked it for a while, but I did it for many, many years and I was getting burnt out and wanted something different. Uh, me too. In the first semester of grad school, I wanted to escape back into bartending because grad school is terrifying your first semester. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> so how, help me, help the listening audience understand, because you think, you know, go to school, get your psychology degree, right? Or a degree in social work or a degree in human development, family studies or whatever it is. You go to college, get your degree, get a career. What was unfulfilling about um, that type of work? Because it seems, it seems pro- fulfilling right it definitely had parts that were fulfilling but it was also frustrating because I would be working with people like when I was doing case management um I was working with people that I knew needed more and Mm. I wasn't able to provide that for them and that was very frustrating there was so much red tape there it was hard to get people the resources that they needed especially in northern Nevada where we're we don't have a lot Mm. we have some but we don't have a lot how do you wrestle with the notion that when you leap out of one pool and put yourself in the other, you just create a vacancy? Because that, in my in my ears, it's like, well, yeah, cool. You're now a, a clinician. You're a you know clinical professional counseling uh, intern, but now they're down one case manager, <laughs> right? Yes, which which is hard. But at the same time, even as a clinician. Now that I'm more rounded, I know the different resources. I know what's going on in the community. Community. So if that was to come up, I'm like, hey, there's like Safe Embrace. Hey, you know what? You're struggling with this. There are these resources, and I'm aware of that. And I also know that there's always more case managers coming in. There's always more people with their, you know, bachelor's degree that's like, hey, I need a job too. So it's almost like you're doing a disservice by keeping that position when you didn't really like it and wanted to do more. 
Yes. Um, it's, I wouldn't say so much that I didn't like it. I loved working with my clients, but I know I felt that I could be more beneficial doing more. Right. And, and, and samesies, right? So like, uh, we, we founded this company, uh, which when you, when you run a company, you invariably take yourself out of the face to face chats because you have to run the company, Mm -hmm. but in opening the company, you get to employ 20 people instead of just yourself. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it, it multiplies, which is, which is cool. And it sounds like what you're doing, you're, you're going to start moving up the ladder a little bit because I can see you reasonably getting into management and teaching other people how to do it too. Cause you're, you're very good at that. So if we shift gears a little bit, um, you're, see, so this is how you got into the field. Uh, the first thing that they do is they throw some coursework at you in grad school and then they make you do some practice work and we call that a practicum, uh, mm-hmm. and then, or an academic internship, if you will. And, uh, during that phase, uh, you worked at one agency and then things kind of, uh, didn't work out super well. And then mm-hmm. you came over here and uh, so you have some some back and forth, but but throughout your career experience, you've you've been exposed to a lot of trauma just in in general, right? Mm-hmm. So so a lot of the f- folks you were working with in psychiatric case management have trauma histories. Um, you worked at a place called the Solace Tree, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, specifically designed for kids who are recovering from uh, loss of a loved one. Uh, typically kids adolescents and adults. I specifically yeah. worked with adolescents. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I should. I should. Yeah. But, it, Kids and adolescents, I lump into one category, but they are, you know, um, they are different. Um, and then um, now you're at Safe Embrace, and Safe Embrace, being a domestic and sexual violence resource uh, group, deals with people with trauma. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that, how you conceptualize it, how this stuff uh, interweaves, and take me through your practicum experience, because I want, I want the audience to know that, you know, because again, this is, I want them to be inspired to go chase down a career in this field if they want to, because I'm all about growing the profession, and I want them to understand what the pathway is, and then not to be afraid of it, even though yours was particularly challenging. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. You did land on your feet, though. I did, I did. Um... Well, the way especially that I look at trauma is everybody has trauma. Different degrees of trauma, but everybody has trauma. Excellent. And Mm -hmm. so with that being said, with my own traumas and complications of going, you know, through different places and trying to figure out this field with not knowing this field and then becoming a single mother of two and then still trying to do it, um, it's easy to relate to. Mm. In... Originally, when I started at Safe Embrace, and you're working with people, and it could it it can be challenging in the aspect of I'm hearing such horrible stories, and these are people's life experiences. But when you see them get that first light of strength, and they see it in themselves, it just makes everything worth it, and it's so much fun, and it's a great dynamic. Everybody that works there cares so much about each person that walks through the doors, and it's just, it's amazing. We probably need to start videoing these, because the audience can't see me nodding in, in <laughs> ascension, but... um I don't know, it's ascent? No, ascent, not ascension. Ascension is when you climb something, right? I have no idea. <laughs> no, help me out here. Uh, but I'm nodding in agreement <laughs> that uh, they do care. Um, these are uh, tough stories to hear. It's, it is hard to, to hear that over and over again. Um, and what pulls you through is, is that hope, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, light of, the light of hope. So what do you say to people who are looking at this career and they say, like I've heard so many times, like, oh, I can never do what you do. I heard that yesterday. Really? <laughs> Tell us about funny. it. Um, 
everybody has different passions. And honestly, what's funny is when I was going into my undergrad, I, I remember I was living in Lake Tahoe at the time. And the only really internship that I saw was a domestic violence shelter. And I was like, oh, I couldn't do that. I don't know if I could do that. As I got older and had my own experiences, um, I realized what it truly was. And whether it was manipulation, we've all experienced manipulation in our life. We've all, you know, changed our mind or because of somebody else. Um, It's not as, it's more common than we believe. Hmm. And even different aspects. So being able to go in there and help people or all of us have felt alone at one time We're we're trapped and we don't know what to do so being able to talk to these women and you know what sometimes men i get men too um being able to talk to these people and know that like just let them know that they aren't alone and that you know what there's somebody there and multiple people there that are willing to fight with them not for them but with them so that they can get back on their feet so that they can find their own strength again you just touched on a very interesting um, separation of terms there. We don't fight for people. We fight with them. Explain. If you're fighting for someone, then they're not going to build that strength for themselves. And the truth is, in order to make it work, they have to find that strength for themselves. And you can't fight harder than them. When they want it, when they make their goals, just like treatment plans, if they're making their goals and they're creating it on their own well with the clinician but when they're creating it they want to do it and then they know that they can and then they have that support and backup to know that they can do it they shouldn't need us forever so what you're doing is you're really creating a dynamic where they realize that um a they can do it themselves b they're not actually doing it themselves they're doing it with somebody which leads to c they're not isolated anymore Mm -hmm. so they have a team and that's and and what we want to foster is something called interdependence Right, not not codependence or dependence, but interdependence, because that's how how human relationships work. We all we all need somebody at some point, and I think you made a valid point there earlier about how we've all experienced manipulation, and, and manipulation is not a dirty word. Mm-hmm. Um, I manipulate the thermostat when I'm cold. Uh, it's not it's not sinister. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, if I go into a job interview, I'm going to manipulate that uh, prospective employer to like me uh, the best that I can. And usually that's through a long, steady history of working really hard. So my resume looks good. It's manipulation uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and it manipulates me into the, into the job I want. So what we're, what we're talking about here when we, when we kind of t- use it as an epithet is when you're manipulating somebody and n- you're the only one that gains out of it right mm-hmm. and 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 there's a victim or there's a there's a trail of destruction left behind so i want to spend a little time there too and, t- and talk about how you work with folks who have been the the subject of this uh very sinister manipulation isolation abuse psychologically physically or otherwise um and how you start the conversation about hope is possible for somebody who maybe has never experienced that so it, it depends on the individual. Um, some people, um, I've used some self-disclosure um, or just being able to help them realize maybe the life that they had prior. Um, uh, we might talk about when was the first time you remember being truly happy? What did that look like? How, how, how can you get there again? What's the differences now than between then? And helping them realize what they used to have 
And, and not everybody has that either. It's obviously an individual basis. It's just people who have lifetimes of abuse, right? Oh, absolutely. It's actually extremely common. A lot of people that I get have either sought with their parents um, that were abused. They watched the abuse. Um, or a lot of different sexual assault history, child molestation. There's, It's usually what I get is a lot of trauma throughout their life. So what do you do with somebody who says, um, I don't ever remember being happy? Then um, I want them to try to figure out what they believe happiness would look like. So what would mm. it be to them? What um, if, if they woke up and they felt everything was perfect and everything was happy, what would, it, like, what would entail in that? There's something in uh, solution-focused therapy called the miracle question. Yeah. That sounds like it. Because it is. <laughs> Tell me about that. Um, I love I love the miracle question. The miracle question is extremely helpful because a lot of times um, people generalize happy. They're like, oh, I just want to be happy. Well, that's yeah. great. But being happy to me is a lot different than being happy to you. So I want to know their core beliefs of what they believe would make them happy and how they know when they get there. So you're operating on the premise that they, they do know somehow on some level. They've mm-hmm. either seen it in a movie or mm-hmm. uh, watched a you know, a bird flapping its wings in the sky, you know, like so, something that we just presume exists in the in the bottom of somebody's psyche somewhere. So we're yes. not having to fabricate it out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself giving examples? Um, I have on a minor level just to give them an idea, but I, I definitely talk about the movie thing. I'm, I'm like, okay, you were watching, you know, this romantic comedy and you thought it was like the greatest relationship ever. Okay, what made it so great? And then breaking mm-hmm. that down. So you're using analytics and you're getting them out of the emotional state of, of happiness or, or excitement or wistfulness or whatever it may be, melancholy even, and using them to, to well, you're helping them use their frontal lobe to break it down. Now, mm-hmm. why, why is this happy? What, what makes it happy? What, what's desirable to you about it? You're not actually challenging their worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, you're helping them to wrap their arms around it. What then? Once, once they get the understanding of, of whatever they want, peace or love or, you know, connectivity, like the concept is now down, how do you help people move toward it? To move toward it, well, that gives us, I mean, that gives us the starting off point. Okay, so say one of the things on there was in order to be happy, um, they want to know how to have a healthy relationship. Well, a healthy relationship has boundaries and boundary work is a lot of what I do because a lot of people weren't taught boundaries growing up. Right. Right. So by working on boundaries, that'll help with keeping themselves safe on a safe level and people learning to look at red flags, learning to look at, Oh, who is healthy for me? What is healthy? What, how does that look for me? What, what is a boundary? Can we, can we define that? Because you know, we all have an idea of what it is, probably. Like there's a gate or a, you know, a line drawn or so, something. But what is it in practical terms? What is a boundary interpersonally when it's not a physical thing? So, well, I work on mainly, we work on a few different boundaries. There's physical boundaries, there's sexual boundaries, and there's energetic boundaries. Um, physical and sexual are the most common. People usually understand what those are. It could be a feeling. So like if somebody comes into your space and you're like, oh, and you get that kind of weird, like, I want you to back up out of my bubble. That, that seems like an energetic boundary. No. Oh, okay. So an energetic boundary, at least to me, would be um, 
say you're getting into a conversation with somebody and somebody says something maybe political that you don't like and it really makes you mad Mm -hmm. and you're having a difficult time getting it. So having somebody else affect you in a way that they shouldn't, that can be an energetic boundary. So you're helping them understand the concept that no one can make you feel fill in the blank, exactly. right? You you allow that to happen to whatever mm-hmm. degree you choose to allow it, mm-hmm. which is a very foreign concept to most people. I think uh, that I encounter it's like you made. I mean, we, we talk like this. He made me feel this, or it made me feel that, and and I even I even teach emotions about you know external stimuli circumstances. The environment will provide you a sense of emotion somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yet you're saying no, that that that's not entirely true. Well, because like you said, we, we choose our emotions we, and then we choose how it affects us. How mm-hmm. long are we going to have it for? How intense is it going to be? Now, Someone's if, been listening to the podcast. Good job. Yay. <laughs> I get to keep my job. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's one of those things like, how do I explain that? So if I have somebody who, like, same example. So somebody says something that I don't agree with that I don't like. Um Instead of taking it to a place where they're personally attacking me, it's a place of, well, that's what they believe and that's where they're at. And that has nothing to do with me because I'm over here. (laughs) Right. So there's uh, one of our fellow clinicians who actually has been on the show, uh, Dave Reed, talks about uh, a concept from object relations, which is uh, self versus Mm non-self. It sounds like you're you're kind of dancing with that. So let's let's pull this pull the the lens back a little bit because we're getting a little bit into the weeds and and apply it to something like a domestic violence relationship. Um, The energetic boundary that's getting violated every time quote unquote buttons get pushed. Mm -hmm. um, My my pushback to that is well, who who told them where your buttons were, and why are you allowing them to be pushed? And um, that gets some some eyebrows cocked a little bit because it in, indicates that maybe the the buttons aren't up for pushing all the time, mm-hmm. um, and maybe you get to decide where the buttons reside. So if you and I are talking and you say something like, you know, Jake, I uh, really enjoy being an employee here, but I think the color scheme of Zephyr Wellness is entirely wrong. I don't like the blue. I think it should be uh, tan and warm colors, not the cool, you know, blues and grays. <laughs> I can I can say, man. She just knows how much I love the blues. She's she's pushing my buttons by purposely antagonizing me uh, with this brown thing, and and now I could claim that you're pushing my buttons, right? But that's me handing over power to you. Mm-hmm. What you're advocating is that um, I'm in control of whether or not I I take that on and feel one way or the other about it. Well, the initial the initial emotion is going to be there. So, Surprise, disappointment, maybe. Yes. Yeah, maybe I have to look critically at the idea that maybe not everybody likes blue, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after that, it becomes your choice. So I've taught that you don't necessarily get to choose what you feel, but you get to choose how much and how long you feel it. Exactly. And you also get to choose how you interpret it. Mm-hmm. So setting good boundaries requires a knowledge of oneself. And if something is not of you, you don't necessarily have to pay attention to it mm-hmm. but in order to get there you got to know who you are exactly and i think a lot a, what we encounter oftentimes is a lot of people who have gone, been through trauma histories they've been neglected uh they're they have been invalidated um they don't really know who they are and or given the opportunity to figure that out when they were to- younger totally totally yeah that's the that's the lifetime you know trauma history thing right so this is recoverable and mm-hmm. and this is what you've been doing 
help me help help the listening audience. Maybe people are listening who you know are like, oh man, they're talking about me. Like I never really, I don't really know who I am. I'm just kind of floating in space. Um, walk generically through that so that if somebody's listening, they can maybe have some some tips and insights on how to quote unquote find themselves in order to differentiate from the stuff that's you know triggering them all the time and attacking them. So, um. I usually start with the external things in the aspect of because it's easier to um, start there pretty much. Mm -hmm. So something like what is something that you've always wanted to try? Volcano climbing. All right. That's an interesting one. Okay, I usually don't get anything that extreme. (laughs) Um, Sushi. So, you know, and then maybe calling a friend or even going by yourself because that can actually be very, very empowering to do that um or like i've suggested there's like reno has different meetups for all different things all around this town really yeah they have um people who like to walk their dogs around the marina and it's free um they have been having like free first dance classes or there's different events in the community that People with like interests can go and meet up. I had no idea. That's a little window into Jake's uh, limited social life is the fact that I don't know these things exist. <laughs> and then there's like um, there's uh, like the Buddhist temple has a lot of free classes, whether it's yoga or donation, but whether it's yoga or whatever. There's mm. there's a lot of different events or the art school. There's a lot of different events around town that people can do for free or cheap where just for self-discovery, be like, you know what? Maybe I do like this. Um, and then maybe they meet a friend. I've had people who go and then they were like, I met a friend that actually is interested in the same thing as me. So discovering what you like is part of knowing who you are. It, it helps. It definitely helps. It is a part of it. What, what about um, the part about pushing away the stuff that's not helpful? Like we're, we're talking about defining a healthy, bound, a healthy relationship. Healthy relationships come with boundaries. Boundaries require you knowing yourself to know where your boundaries are, mm-hmm. to push away the bad stuff and invite in the good stuff. So you, we've identified, go find stuff that you like. Give yourself permission to like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't worry about what voices are in your head telling you that you shouldn't, quote unquote, or you, you mustn't, you know. Um, but then we have to do something about uh, repelling the, the negative ones. Yes, so we do a lot of work on self-talk, and which is how we talk to ourselves on a regular basis. I kind of explain it if, you know, you're running a marathon and you have a whole bunch of people on the side of it yelling at you, telling you you can't do it and, you know, you're horrible. And you're probably going to lose motivation to keep continue doing it. Unless. Unless. You, that drives you. Right, right. Yes, which but, it's a case-by-case case with this. But but if, you, if you're if you the type of person who gets driven by negative feedback, you probably have a pretty good sense of self. Yes. Right? Because mm-hmm. you know that that's not you, mm-hmm. and it's of something else. It's, a, you know, it's, it's the bully who's trying to tear you down, or it's the jealous person who just wants to see you fall because uh, they don't have, feel good about themselves, or whatever it is. And you go, I'm not listening to that because that's not of me. Mm-hmm. So that's where we want to get people, right? So yes. that they're not losing motivation simply because they're being introduced to negative concepts or thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm referring to the ones where they're hearing this and they're breaking themselves down where it shuts them down. Hmm. And so we start 
so we start working on self-talk how i usually tell how i usually explain it to people well first i ask if they like children but yeah. uh, uh, but i say okay so we'll come up with a scenario and i'm like okay so this child comes up to you and maybe says oh my gosh i'm so stupid because i can't get this word problem you know i'm just a horrible person i'm gonna give up are you gonna tell that child yeah you're pretty stupid no probably not yeah it's not likely no, you'd find another way, something like, you're not stupid, we just haven't learned it yet, but we can figure this out and we're going to do this. By doing that and by talking to ourselves like we're a child, pretty much, it gives us that extra support and that care that maybe we didn't get previously. What about people who truly just own, like really own the idea that they don't believe that they can? Like, they, they just, you know, I've heard people say, you know, like, I'm just an angry person, you know. Uh, it's like, no, you didn't come out of the womb that way. But there, uh, I would imagine in the in the DV world, in the in the chronic trauma world, you get people who say stuff like that. Though they're like, but I just don't believe that I can. I just don't think I'm worthwhile. And, and a lot of a lot of them are suicidal too because mm-hmm. of that, right? You have no self worth. They don't believe in themselves. So it's like, well, well, why not die? So how do you combat that where it's it's so extreme? They're not this is not just ambivalence where we're debating, you know, whether or not they should care. This is like an invested almost an identity problem mm-hmm. where they don't believe in themselves. How do you how do you work with that? By that what I do is um I challenge with logic and facts. You can't you can't argue with that. If you challenge with emotion like, "Oh, but you seem like a really great guy." Mm-hmm. That's too easy I to challenge. I can reject that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so if you broke it down, so you're like, okay, so what constitutes a good guy? Okay, well, they're nice to people, and they're giving, and they're this, and they're that. Okay, so from our conversation, you have told me that, you know, you are nice to children, you're nice to older people, you're nice to this. Okay, hmm, well, that meets part of your criteria, and it's always their criteria, it's not mine. Right, right. Um, and then the next thing, okay, well, you have shown me through our sessions or or through stories this this and this hmm that meets criteria so if you're meeting all these criteria what does that say to you well yes but anyone would do that if we're role-playing this uh, i don't let people say but because when you say but it um gets rid of everything in the beginning yeah yeah um <laughs> we we try not to swear on this podcast but i'm going to now um but I, and it's, I stopped myself i know i know <laughs> There's an old phrase that I learned from an old friend. Uh, this is uh, everything before but is bullshit. Yep. So wrap your heads around that, people. If you're using but a lot, I would invite you to replace that with the word and uh, and invite two things to exist simultaneously. Because if you're talking about how great you are, but you're basically saying I'm not great. It's whatever mm-hmm. follows is what re- really owns the conversation. So so but let's let's say that. So you work with somebody who, you know, you just say that. You're like, you just invalidate everything with that but. Because, well, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I get what you're saying. Uh, I've done all these nice things. Uh, that doesn't make me a nice person. Well, I think a lot of times, too, people connect behaviors with the person that they are. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so closely. Where there isn't anybody that does everything perfect and nice all the time. It's just not reality. It's Correct. just not possible. So why would that make somebody a bad person? So I, I try to, and it depends on the person. It's, it's hard because it's very general and everybody's sure. uh, different. I know, I understand. Um, I try to intellectualize it to a point where, so we can get out of the emotions um, so that when we break it down, it becomes more understanding. 
Um, yeah. There's some very depressed people who are very invested in um, their lack of self-worth. Oh, yes. And um, they come into counseling, and some fledgling clinicians uh, might make the mistake of thinking that they, quote-unquote, don't want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will – I try very hard not to make – assumptions about people's desires to change because I'm going to operate on the fundamental assumption that people do want peace, tranquility, happiness, success. Um, Whether or not they've told themselves that over time is a different matter. So to your point, intellectualizing it um, where you're teaching them stuff, like teaching them the infinite possibility of human potential, Mm -hmm. uh, teaching them that they're not limited by the, the labels that other people have been put on them gives them at least an opportunity to expand their awareness uh, away from just the investment in being depressed or being feeble or or dependent or whatever it is into the possibility that something else exists. And then from there, you can start having a discussion about supporting that, that maybe they're not simply only what they think they are, but they are so much greater than that. Um, I always try to instill hope. Yeah. That's that's probably one of the biggest things. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It it does. Um, because a lot of a lot of the folks who've who've experienced a lot of trauma and come from uh, violent backgrounds, they have lost a lot of hope because it's been stolen from them by the voices of authority in their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's it's super tragic. Talk a little bit about Safe Embrace and the case management stuff. We were ta- we were hoping to have maybe a uh, an advocate worker come around, but um, we were a little limited on time. But I want you to at least make the plug for that because I don't think John covered it when we talked. So what does what does advocacy do? How does it intertwine with um, counseling? Mm-hmm. And what what's the agency do for this uh, demographic? Well, there are different advocates, and sadly, I I might forget some because they all have different specialties. So uh-huh. we have a legal advocate, um, which will work with like legal issues, TPOs, um, child custody stuff. So and TPO is a temporary oh, protection order, otherwise sorry. known as a restraining order. Yeah, a restraining order, um, which is really wonderful because they'll actually go to like say they have to go on the stand and they're terrified and they're scared the advocates will actually go and support them so that they have a friendly face in the the audience. So um, then we have rapid rehousing. So there's a few different housing possibilities um, to try to get people when they get out, whether it's um, getting them a hotel for a few days while we, um, while they um, help, find them some secure housing with an apartment. Um, we, there's the shelter and then at the shelter, um, there's groups, there's individual therapy there. Also they have, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful home. Mm-hmm. Uh, they is. have, there's just so many resources. They even started now they have a store open. So the families that are there can go and get clothes and toys and different things that they need. Um, they have, I know I'm missing some advocates. Emily, one of our employees, does she's the the sexual violence? Yes, yeah, she's sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what does that entail? Not sure. That's I, I don't know. I'm sorry. Good thing we're not recording this on video because that was a really strange face. <laughs> I have a very animated face. You do. <laughs> Uh, so um, there's, there's... Well, we do. So at Safe Embrace, we have domestic violence, we have sexual assault, and we also do human trafficking. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a lot of different events in the community. This month, there's been a lot of trivia. There's movie. There's um, so with community partners. It's been actually really, really wonderful. Um, 
so they're they're always in the community they're always doing stuff there's i know the uh trees and lights gala is coming up then they have like during christmas time you can adopt a family or a child to give christmas gifts to that wouldn't normally get them Mm -hmm. it's just they're always there and they're always working hard for everybody in there i think it's really hard it was hard for me so i'm just generalizing that you know most people probably find it hard to conceptualize what um, domestic violence really is like when you leave the situation um, with your children, your pet, mm-hmm. uh, and you got nothing on your except the clothes on your back. So you mentioned mm-hmm. the store; it's basically like a like a thrift store, uh, mm-hmm. discounted items, but they uh, they can spend their own money. It all self generates to to fund the agency. But um, it's very empowering to go shopping for the first time if you've been financially manipulated, mm-hmm. you know, financially abused. So that's why the store is so important. If people don't understand, it's like, why do you have a store like at the safe house? Um, that's why. Because mm-hmm. simply getting the idea to, that you can pick out your own stuff and keep it as your own when you've never known that kind of autonomy or liberty mm-hmm. is very, very empowering. And similarly, um, getting getting things like Christmas gifts. Like if you're leaving your, your abuser and you're taking the kids and the pets um, – there goes your your Christmas, you know, because yep. often the, the, the abuse and the manipulation occurs financially. So uh, not only is there shopping involved, but there's also the, the gift giving and the, and the normalcy of, of holiday seasons and that kind of thing. Um, so that's why it's empower- it's really powerful. And if, it's really important that if the listening audience chooses to donate, they can do so for the Trees and Lights Gala. Um, you can go to safeembrace.org and find out more about that, obviously. Um, in wrapping up... <laughs> I've seen you grow a tremendous amount uh, as your supervisor over the last uh, year and a half or so, and it's been really cool for me to watch. And I, I, t- I tell people as often as I can that the the most proud that I've been of everything we've done at Zephyr is, is host graduate students because not only is it a service to the community for people who can't you know maybe afford their copays or mm-hmm. uh, their deductibles or maybe they have insurance we don't take or maybe they just don't have insurance, we don't have to turn them away. So that's really cool. But it also gives me a chance to mentor uh, fledgling clinicians into the profession and help grow the profession. And um, it's, it's really neat to watch people grow um, in any capacity. What I want to know from you is what are, I don't know, two to five things that, you've, uh, that stand out to you that you've learned that maybe you didn't realize you were going to learn through these experiences? Um. Honestly, probably my biggest thing was that I can do it because going into the profession, not knowing anything, nobody in my family went to college, so I had to figure that out on my own. And then bartending, I never worked in mental health. I didn't even know anybody in mental health. So I had to do a lot of research and figuring it out on my own. So there was a lot of self-doubt, especially doing it as a single mom. It was very, very difficult, especially with internship which you don't get paid for practicum internships. So it's like, so that's extra time away from kids or work or whatever. Um, So the fact that I could do it and what's nice about Reno too, is it is smaller. So once you start to meet some people, then it pretty, it gets easier to meet more and more people. Um, Another one is that it's, at least to me, it's worth it. Every single day I come to work, I'm happy, Mm -hmm. Um, which I haven't always experienced that. So I love what I do. I love, you know, sitting down with people and just seeing that light in them. And it's just, it's so worth it to me every single day. What else? I don't know. Well, those are probably my big ones. That's, it warms my heart though, to hear you say that, because it means that it's working. Like what we're doing, this stuff works. 
You know, it's not just it's not just me who gets a benefit by watching you grow. We're helping other people recover. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's if I if I have one message to send people who are listening, <clears throat> it's that whatever you're struggling with is temporary. Mm-hmm. Always, a hundred percent of the time, because you yourself even expire as a human being. So, like <laughs> at some point, it ends. Um, and that's not to invoke like uh, anxiety in people. Though, oh my god, I'm going to die someday. Um, but it's to to actually give hope, no matter what your situation is. There, you know, we talk in terms of seasons of life or um, passages of time, and you know, growth areas and all that stuff. It's everything is temporary. So even though you may be continually finding yourself in a situation that seems similar over and over. Um, it's changing and at any point you can, you can redirect. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's the eternal hope that springs, uh, in the human spirit. And when we can help provide that light and that path to people who are really in dark places, it's really motivating to get out of bed in the morning and keep doing that, mm-hmm. you know? So thank you. And my supervisor's awesome. Well, <laughs> he's no slouch. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And um, thanks for cramming in this time. I know it was last minute. And um, it's 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 always fun to, to do these podcasts and learn new things. I've learned things about you that I didn't know. Um, and I think the, the listening audience probably appreciates it too. So I always find it weird when I ask the, the, the guests, like, is there anything else you want to say? And it feels like any last words, like we're about to have an execution. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anything to wrap up? Um, no, just thank you for listening and just know that even though you might not know how to do it, it is possible and there's always people around. That's the joy of this profession. There's always people around willing to talk and willing to like tell you whether it was how they did it or anything else. Like it is a very much a helping profession. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Well, thanks on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family. I wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.